Welcome to the Modern Classrooms Project podcast. Each week, we bring you discussions with educators on how they use blended, self-paced, and mastery-based learning to better serve their students. We believe teachers learn best from each other, so this is our way of lifting up the voices of leaders and innovators in our community. This is the Modern Classrooms Project podcast. Hello and welcome to episode 110 of the Modern Classrooms Project podcast. My name is Tony Rose Deanna and she, they pronouns, a community engagement manager here at Modern Classroom. And I am joined by an AP economics teacher, Arpan Choksi. Welcome, Arpan. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's so exciting to be in this space with you. And thank you so much for saying yes to the podcast. So before we get started, I really like to ask our guests, how are you feeling today? I'm feeling very well. We're doing doing really well. Uh, last week I had uh, you know family member that was sick, um, so last week was a little stressful. But finally, kind of getting back on track at school. So doing doing well. Enjoying the fall weather in the suburbs of Chicago. Oh, Chicago! It's about to get real cold, right? <laughs> uh, yes, but we don't think about that. We we focus on the on the the good weather while we have it. So. <laughs> yeah, so I'll manifest all the good weather. <laughs> Yes. Um, all right. Well, tell us a little bit more about who you are and how you started your modern classroom journey. Sure. So I teach at Hinsdale Central High School. This is my 13th year um, teaching. And I've always done a fair amount of blended and self-paced, especially in the last, I would say, six or seven years. And I was fortunate to, you know, watch the Edutopia video probably in late 2020. And then a group of instructional coaches and myself started studying different blended uh, models in 2021. And I started the, the free course in 2021. And like, as I went through the course, I was just like, yep, that makes sense. Yep, that makes sense. Um, it basically kind of met uh, or addressed so many of the small issues or challenges I had in trying to implement like a blended self-paced mastery-based uh, classroom. Um, and then I first started implementing in August of 2021. And I think I just watching uh, or listening to the podcast, doing the free course, all of those things really helped me kind of gain the confidence necessary to, to start implementing. So clarifying question, Arpan, you said you had a team, right? There's a, a group of you all that were researching or trying to figure out blended learning. Mm hmm. So when you started, when you found out about Modern Classroom, were there other people with you doing the course? Uh, we were kind of doing it on our own. And then occasionally we would kind of discuss notes. Um, we, we thought we would be like doing like a serious blended pilot across like a number of different courses. Uh, but our, our school wasn't ready for that. Our district wasn't ready for that. So I just kind of went ahead and continued on my own. Uh, but we would just discuss different aspects of the model. Uh, but ultimately, we were just kind of learning on our own and implementing on our own. I love that. So basically, you kind of just had that autonomy to make those decisions, right? Like, oh, I want to try this thing out. And you were able to do that. Yep. Yep. And there was another teacher who had done a small pilot within her English class. So it was really helpful to like bounce ideas off of each other and say, hey, how are you using Canvas to do self-paced? How do you tell students what's required or must do and should do and inspired? So it was nice to have another teacher to kind of discuss some ideas off of, but I had a lot of autonomy to just kind of trial and error with my own class. I really love that whole having a thought partner and just having someone to discuss like 
the different ways that you're trying to implement um, in, you know, self-pacing and as well as like blended learning and mastery-based grading as well um, in your classroom. And so I, I always tell our community, it's really nice to just have that one person you can have a conversation with. It doesn't need to be a huge group of people, but just one person to bounce ideas off is really, really powerful. Definitely. And I, I think it's one of the paradoxes of teaching, right? You're surrounded by people and students all day. Um, and, you, you know, if you teach in a larger school, you're, you have a number of colleagues, but at the same time, uh, teaching can be very isolating. It can be very like you're feeling like alone sometimes. And like you said, just having even one other person to bounce ideas off of and, you know, think things through can be really, really helpful. So I'm just fortunate to have another colleague and then been, you know, involved with the modern classroom community. So that's been really great as well. Yeah. And I mean, you know, like, trying to do a whole new way of teaching and learning is also very scary and to do it all by yourself is really intimidating. And so to, you know, alleviate some of that stress and pressure, it's really nice to just kind of be able to reach out to someone and have that conversation. That's why I always tell teachers like, Hey, if you're going to implement the modern classroom, like find a teacher bestie. So you two can kind of go through it together and have those conversations and how it's going to work really well with your classes, with your students, with your school. Uh, so thank you for sharing that. So tell us a little bit more about your school. You said that you're uh, around Chicago, right? So tell us a little bit more about your classes, your demographic schedule, technology usage, like anything like that. Sure. So I teach at Hinsdale Central High School, and it's you know in the suburbs of Chicago. Uh, generally, uh, kind of a more affluent suburban community, but definitely not. Uh, that doesn't mean that applies to all of the students. Um, in terms of demographics. Predominantly white, uh, about 20% Asian, 8% Hispanic, 3% Black. Only about 2% of students are um, English learners, which I think we'll talk a little bit about later. And it's a relatively large school. We have about 2,600 students. And the school and the district really prides itself on kind of a college prep curriculum. So about more than 90% of our students will attend a two or four year college. You know, we offer more than 30 AP classes and, you know, the, I think traditionally would be considered a very like academically rigorous school. Um, and we really try to prepare students for that. And in terms of kind of my teaching, I teach uh, social studies and I've been teaching AP macroeconomics for the past two years, which is an 11th or mostly 12th grade elective. And then I also teach regular economics, which is a one semester elective for sophomores to seniors, 10th to 12th grade. And then the last class that I teach is uh, a sheltered world culture. So it's world cultures uh, for English learners. And I have the full range of students from ninth to 12th grade in that class. So just to clarify, you have three different courses that you're planning? Yes, three different classes. Mm -hmm. And I teach four, four periods a day. We have 50 minute periods. Um, and I also have a release period for instructional coaching. Tell us more about that. What does that entail? Right. So the instructional coaching um, do a lot of to kind of wear a lot of different hats. Uh, I think in other schools, we mainly be considered like instructional technology coaches. So we do a lot with helping teachers learn how to use new tools to teach in more innovative ways. And it's that group of teachers that I work with, the other instructional coaches who are first looking at different blended models. And what I love about instructional coaching is that it gives me the opportunity to meet with teachers across the school uh, and teachers in, 
in, across our district and learn from them uh, different subject areas and you know really help them kind of reflect on their own teaching their own pedagogy and find ways to kind of help them uh, with whatever their goals are right so it might be uh, you know formative assessment it might be doing a little adding more creativity and student agency to a project uh, it might be something as simple as giving feedback using our LMS so there's a lot of different things that we do uh, but generally there's some instructional technology component um, and what we've been trying to do is kind of shift the conversations more towards the teaching and the learning as opposed to just the tools that we use to make it happen. I love that so much. I was an instructional coach for technology at the last school that I worked at. And it's a whole like different realm, right? Like you have to cover instructional coaching as far as like best um, strategies for teaching and learning. And then like adding tools to enhance those teaching and learning practices. So that was a whole new thing for me. And I really enjoyed being an instructional coach for technology. I thought that that was really, really dope to have those conversations with teachers and also to dismantle that, you know, the misconception of um, just utilizing tools, just to utilize them. And it's like, no, we actually have to be a lot more intentional, right? Like tools are there to enhance and not to replace. Definitely. Right. And just being able to have those conversations where asking teachers to reflect on, you know, why they're using a certain tool, what their next steps might be, how to help use the tool to have students create instead of just teachers creating. Like there's a lot of shifts that can happen uh, when we were able to like steer the conversation towards like, again, the, the learning and the teaching. So uh, definitely it's, it's, a, it's, it's, I'm really fortunate to have the opportunity to work with so many teachers. Uh, it also gives me the opportunity to keep learning and learning from, you know, different practices from all the, all my colleagues. Yeah. And that's kind of, it's really, I think it's kind of cool that you still have classes as well, right? So like, just you said, you're learning from your colleagues and then you're able to implement that in your own classes. So I love that. That's really cool. Right. Um, okay. So you said that your school offers 30 AP classes. Yeah, I think it's 32. I don't know the exact number, but it's more than 30. Yeah, <laughs> That's incredible. And also, how did you choose a AP macroeconomics? So I studied economics and finance in, in undergrad. Uh, so my bachelor's was in economics and finance. Then I later on decided to go into teaching, did my master's. So I've always loved economics. I've always loved how it like truly can change how you see the world. Like it is a, is a lens by which you can see the world. Not the only lens, but it's 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 a lens. And so, um, you know, every year uh, as, as our administrators are making schedules for the upcoming school year, they're always looking to see what, you know, new classes teachers might want to teach. And, um, you know, my department chair knew that I had an economics background. And so when the opportunity presented itself, I was, I said, yes, I, I was actually very resistant to teaching AP classes for a long time. So I, I was teaching for um, 11 years before I ever started teaching AP. Uh, I always uh, enjoyed the autonomy that you have um, in a non-AP course. You know, the AP curriculum uh, is heavily guided by the college board. Uh, and I really like the autonomy that I have, for example, in my regular economics class. Um, but on the flip side, you know, you are teaching a more rigorous curriculum and, you know, a different group of students. And so I, you know, took the plunge last year and I was kind of the crazy teacher that's like, I'm going to start teaching a brand new class and I'm going to teach it in a brand new way using the modern classroom model. Um, and it worked out really well. I think I just needed a clean slate to really rethink 
how I structure my class, which, you know, modern classroom just provides such an intuitive way of organizing. So that was kind of my journey and I, I love it. Like it's, it's, it's great. It's helped me, you know, develop new practices that I'm also using in my other classes. And um, since it's a semester long class, I get to do more iterations. Like I kind of think of it as like different versions of software, right? Like every, every unit, every semester, I'm making little tweaks and changes to keep improving, improving the course. And I think it was also beneficial that you're, you know, starting out with teaching AP and then also starting a new way of teaching it. So you hadn't been teaching AP before and you already had like the whole um, structure for it before modern classroom, because I know talking to other AP teachers who have been teaching for a while, right? They're like, there's no way that I can do modern classroom in an AP class. We have too much content to cover. Did you come at, like, were there any barriers or challenges with that for you? Like, oh, I have too much to cover that I can't do modern classroom. Or did that thought ever come to your head? Uh, I think a little bit initially. Um, not that there was too much to cover in using the modern classroom model, just that there's a lot, period. Like, you know, there, there can be quite a bit of content uh, in, a, in an AP class. And I know you and I had talked about this earlier, and I, I actually, the reason I chose to start it with an AP class is I feel like it's actually easier because the learning standards and the targets are very clearly defined by the college board, uh, especially in a course like AP economics, the lessons, there's a natural progression, which again, the college board has kind of already laid out. And the assessments are already very, very clear, and those are already for the most part provided by the college board in terms of like AP classroom and the, the questions that are out there and practice tests. So I felt like some of the biggest pieces of creating, you know, a modern classroom or implementing modern classroom, like I felt like some of the biggest pieces were already there. And uh, I thought it actually works really well because there, when you have a lot of content in order to, use the modern classroom model, you have to have a laser focus on what exactly do I need to teach and what exactly do I need my students to learn and what exact type of evidence will demonstrate that level of learning. And this process actually worked really, really well. Um, you know, like in a traditional model, you might say, okay, I lectured on this. I covered the content. I'm going to move on. But as we know, that doesn't necessarily mean every student learned it. And so, I think that the AP class actually made it easier to do the modern classroom um, than, than a, you know, a traditional class. It's kind of refreshing to hear. Uh, I, I've never taught AP before, so I have no idea how that would even work. But it's really nice to hear you say, like, you know, when I'm listening to you describe it, it makes sense, right? Like everything is clearly laid out. It's just kind of plugging in and being super intentional with what is going to be the must-dos for students so that they can engage better with the material. That's great. Thank you for sharing that. And so I remember the first time that you and I talked one-on-one, Arpan, like it was yesterday, we literally talked about collaboration how would the, and how that would look in your classroom, right? Especially in your AP classes. So tell us more about your process of like getting your students to collaborate. So some of the wins and losses of different collaborative tasks, um, some low lift activities that you've created so that your students can get to talking and collaborating with each other. Yeah. So I think you know, collaboration is something that I try to do in all my classes, even the classes that I'm not currently using the modern classroom model in fully. 
I think there's a, a few kind of key pieces to collaboration. So a lot of my understanding uh, in collaboration was informed by some training that I had to take many years ago. This is probably my second or third year teaching on uh, Kagan or Kagan cooperative structures. And what I really appreciated about that training or that kind of uh, skills that we had to uh, learn was that it basically gave a framework and then said, there needs to be some accountability. There needs to be some interdependence, meaning you know students have to work together. And there, you should have certain structured activities that students learn how to do, so that you're not having to teach that structure every single time. And so there's you know a few activities that we do relatively often. And I, at first I thought, oh well, students might get bored or you know this might get a little repetitious. But actually, that familiarity. Uh, with the certain activities that we do, the structures that we do really helped. And then just having that kind of self-check for myself, all right, will this activity facilitate interdependence? Like do both students or do all the students have to contribute in some way? Is there some way that I am keeping all students accountable? Um, and so I've tried to use that same uh, lens as I've created activities for my AP macro class. So I'd be happy to go into some specific examples. Oh my gosh, yes. And I'm sure our listeners would love that also. <laughs> right. So I kind of think of like a kind of a progression in, in the modern classroom where the students are, you know, learning some new content, usually through a video, but occasionally through a reading. Um, and in my class, they take some guided notes using learning targets that I provide. So one of like the kind of the easiest low-hanging fruits that I have with collaboration with after the students have learned some content is right at the beginning of class, like usually within the few minutes of class, what I will ask students to do periodically, this isn't every day, probably uh, a couple of times a week is I'll say, all right, take out your note packet, especially when I know that based on the progress tracker, I know all the students have completed a certain set of videos. And I'll say, all right, uh, for lessons 2.1 and 2.2, first, I want you to reread the learning targets. And then I want you to reread your notes and I want you to underline the part of your notes that align with those learning targets. So that usually only takes a few minutes. Um, and then what I say is now what I'd like you to do is to quiz your partner. So the way I have my classroom set up is that each student is sitting next to an assigned partner. And I would say, I'd like you to quiz your partner using the learning target. So uh, they are taking the learning targets that I've provided and turning them into questions. And they'll just take turns quizzing each other on learning targets. So this has a couple benefits. First of all, it's pretty much no prep for me, right? I don't need to create any new activity or worksheet or, or any materials. Uh, second, I think it forces students to self-assess, right? Did I, did I take notes on all the learning targets? Do I know it well enough, right? And then I think the third benefit is that it helps them think about the types of questions that they're likely to see on their mastery check or their unit exam or their AP exam. So they're, you know, I coach them on what are the types of questions to ask. So early in the year, I would say, look, here's a learning target. You could ask this super specific question uh, um, in a really arcane detail, or you could ask it this way, which gets at the main idea, which might you might see on an AP test. So in terms of the content uh, where students are first seeing it through videos, they take notes, and then, you know, a couple times a week at the beginning of class, I'll have students quiz each other uh, using uh, this structure based on learning targets. 
that's such a simple, but yet like something we don't think about, right? A strategy of just like, actually, just let's look at the learning targets. Let's have conversations about it. Um, I think a couple of things stood out to me was that it's no prep. It's little prep for the teacher. And then it's also a really great way for our students to self-assess. And that is a life skill that we want our students to practice every single day if possible, right? And so there's a lot of skills here that you are really touching base on and getting our students to to practice, especially when they're collaborating with each other. Um, okay, do you have another one that you could potentially share, you think? Definitely, I have a few others. So like, you know, moving on in the progression. So after students have learned some new content, I'll ask them to practice. So there's a couple ways that I ask students to practice. Uh, one is a workbook that we have that's, again, well aligned to the AP curriculum. And um, something as simple as, all right, um, based on the progress tracker, I can see these groups of students are done. So I'll say, all right, let's get into a group. And before I go over the answers, I'll simply say, all right, I'd like you to check your answers with the person sitting next to you. And this is flexible grouping, right? This is grouping simply based on who has completed the workbook uh, for that lesson. And I'll say, okay, check your answers with, with someone sitting next to you. And then I will say, circle anything that you and your partner disagreed on. And if you and your partner can come to an agreement about what the right answer is, great. Uh, if not, let's talk about it. So in the, again, there's some interdependence, right? They both have to provide uh, their answer, an explanation for their answer. And then there's accountability because they know that after they've checked their answers with their partner, there is, they're going to be asked to present the answers, right? So I'm not the one that's doing all the talking, that's telling them what the right answer is and why. They're the ones um, doing that. And the benefit of doing this in, in a smaller group is that oftentimes when students explain their thought process, it is more understandable. It's more approachable for other students. Kind of reminds me of like Vygotsky's zone of proximal development. Like oftentimes peers are at a closer level of development understanding than I am. Oftentimes I feel like I'm explaining things clearly, but I've been studying this and teaching this for years. And so that benefit of them explaining to one another. So I think in terms of practice with workbook, just simply check your answers with a partner, explain your answers, and then be ready to share with the group um, can be really helpful. And then of course, I'm there to you know, clarify anything that's there's any misunderstanding. In my English brain, right? Because I taught English for the longest time as well. I'm like, oh, I should have been doing this as well. <laughs> like, instead of just coming together as a class and talking about it, really having that intentional pair or grouping to check your answers and then have a healthy debate before knowing what the real, what the quote unquote correct answer is, right? Like, even when I talk to exactly. math teachers, there's so many different ways to get to the answer, right? But the beauty of this is that students are should be able to show how they're getting the answer. And it may not be how student A did it or student B, but there's just so many different ways to get to that one thing. And I think the power of coming together and learning from each other, of like, oh, you did it that way. Well, I did it this way. I just feel like that's so, that's, that's so powerful. And I... I would have never thought that, which is wild, but I feel like now, again, if I were to go back in the classroom, I would definitely do. Right. And I, I think the kind of key component here is the progress tracker. Like the fact that I can make groups based on students that have completed um, a certain set. I mean, similarly, I also, I have the progress tracker displayed, you know, on the screen pretty much the entire class period. And the students can also see it on their Chromebooks. And um, I forgot to mention, we're a one-to-one -one school. All students have Chromebooks and um, 
students that don't have internet access at home get like a mobile hotspot. And I think that's you know really important to make sure, right, from an equity standpoint. I actually survey my students at the beginning of the year to find out if they have reliable internet. But um, and anyways, I think the, the progress tracker helps me know how to make those groups. And then also as they're like, so they're, I encourage them to say, hey, as much as possible, try to watch the videos at home, try to use class time to do the practice and um, the practice activities in the workbook and other activities that I give them. So as they're working, they can just glance and say, oh man, I'm really stuck on number five. Uh, let me, oh, I see that, um, you know, Isabella has already finished number five or has already finished this workbook page. Let me go ask her. So this is another structure that I have to teach them say, yes, I want you to ask each other for help, but it is your responsibility to teach them, not to just give them the answer. Um, and what I, what I have found is as long as I keep the workbook a low stakes activity where I'm not grading it to see if they got every question correct, they actually treat it that way. Um, they actually say, look, I can see that you have the answer, but explain it to me because they know that they're going to have to be able to do it on their mastery check and on their unit exam. So um, even just that simple, authentic collaboration, like in the real world, you know, I go and ask uh, the other teacher that teaches AP macroeconomics when I have a question, right? Like I'm not always told, hey, you need to work with this teacher and work on something together. You know, we do have collaboration time that's scheduled, but a lot of times I'm just popping into his room like, hey, how do you explain this concept? I'm not really sure if I'm doing this correctly. So I think having those authentic moments um, where students just go when they have a felt need to work together and giving them that opportunity, uh, but also teaching them how you want them to collaborate um, is really important. So that's another way when they're doing like the, when they're actually working on the workbook that they also collaborate. And I mean, just like what you said, right, progress tracker, it's really good to have so students can reference who they can go and work with. I like that you pointed out like, hey, you're teaching, not telling, because this is a skill that I needed to teach my middle schoolers as well. Right. I had student teachers, but they didn't know what that entailed. They were just kind of telling each other the answers. And so I had to really teach them how to teach because sometimes our students don't know. And so I really like that. It's a low lift, right? There's no pressure to be perfect or perform because it's not being graded. And I think this is one of the things that teachers, educators worry about is that, well, if it's not graded, it's not going to get done. And in my head, I feel like if it's not graded, it allows for our students to make mistakes, to embrace those mistakes, and it really allow for them to practice the skills before they actually have to be graded on it. Exactly. Right. And just to give a couple other quick examples. So, you know, I mentioned the workbook is one of the primary ways for practice. The other thing that I do is sometimes I'll just give practice questions from like previous AP exams. And they're a little bit more challenging. So one thing that we do is like kind of, again, this is like a cooperative structure, kind of like rally coaching it's called, where I will only give one uh, copy of the practice quiz to two group, two students, a pair of students. And they basically have to take turns writing, but the, the student that's not writing is basically coaching the other student. And the reason I think this works is that, you know, when you get to these practice questions from former AP tests, like there's a really high cognitive load, right? There's a lot of heavy lifting students have to do. So if they're able to share that load, especially early on in the unit or early on in the lesson, I think they're able to like slow down, you know, check their work and really focus on like discrete aspects. So uh, in my course, there's a quite a bit of graphing in, in the later units. And so the, the student that's not writing, uh, they'll oftentimes like, I'll give them, we have a, we have a creative uh, whiteboards that I just got cut from Home Depot. And uh, they 
you know, I'll, I'll just give them a whiteboard and be like, look, they're writing the answer on the quiz, but I want you to check and coach your um, partner uh, using the graphs. Um, because for most of the questions and in our course, like if there's some graphing or some work that needs to be done, they need to show like show that work, right? And, and then they take turns, right? So it's not just one student. And I think splitting that work early on really helps. And again, there's an interdependence and there's an accountability because they know that they'll have to explain it to the class later on. And I think with you, the expectations, it's clear, it's set. You've shown them their different roles. I really like the idea of rally coaching, of just taking turns, but you're also coaching each other if you're not writing on the paper, right? And so I think that's a really cool strategy, a, a concept that is definitely helpful for students to just continue learning and engaging with one another, just like you said, the inter interdependence. Um, yeah, okay, cool. Is there anything else? There's a few other things. So like... Um, I think in terms of collaboration, it's not always real time in person while you're sitting next to uh, a classmate. Like, I think we can create opportunities to collaborate asynchronously, which again, that's something that, you know, in, in this day and age, adults do all the time in the workplace. So uh, my kind of go-to aspire to do assignment is a discussion board where we take some of these concepts that they've been learning uh, in, in the AP curriculum and try to apply it to a very current, very real day topic. Um, so for example, um, you know, we're talking about economic indicators and unemployment. Uh, you know, on the AP test, they only need to know how to calculate unemployment and the different types of unemployment. Um, but I think an enriching op like opportunity is for students to say, well, what's going on with unemployment right now? Why are certain racial or ethnic demographics facing higher unemployment? Uh, what are possible policies to address it? And so they do this through a discussion board. So some students, you know, might be ahead on a certain lesson, so then they, you know, post on the discussion board. But then for the next week, they might just be trying to keep up with the lessons. And so while some students might have extra time at home, some might have extra time in class. So giving them opportunities to collaborate um, asynchronously through the discussion board has been really helpful, especially uh, when I don't have a lot of class time to bring up these real world connections that I want to, but due to the amount of content, I'm not always able to. So those are also um, a couple things that we do to try to do collaboration asynchronously. And I'm really glad that you pointed that out because especially with COVID happening, right, we had to do a lot of things asynchronously as adults and as young learners. And so for you to just name that, it's really important because I think sometimes educators forget that collaboration doesn't necessarily have to be in real time where they're in the physical, the same physical space. They can actually do that on a Google Doc or they can do it on a discussion board, like you said. And I really like your Aspire to do as well because I think that that's so much more motivating for students to actually want to get to, right? Because it's it's relevant. It's what's happening right now. And it also shows them that what they're learning in class is actually useful outside of class. <laughs> Most definitely. And I think that like what you said earlier about a lot of AP teachers might struggle because there's so much content. I think finding creative ways to still bring in these real world connections, um, you have to get creative because there is limited time. And so um, you almost have to do things a little bit asynchronously if you want to try to still talk about it, even if you can't talk about it all at the same time. 
Yeah. And even, I mean, me reflecting back on uh, like be, me being a student, I would have really enjoyed it if there were more real world applications, because I feel like that would have stuck longer with me or I would have had I would have been a lot more engaged if it was something that's like, oh, this is happening right now. And this is how my whatever class pertains to the real world. Right. So I really like that you provide that opportunity and that option for students to really access that learning that's happening outside of outside of your classroom. And so this is actually a great segue because I'm excited about your class now. How do you get your students excited about economics? Because the first time I talked to you and I realized that you taught AP macroeconomics, I was like, oh my gosh, that sounds awful. Because <laughs> my math brain is not there. <laughs> so how do you get your students excited right. to come in and learn? And I'm sure like the real world application is one of them. But what are your, some of your tips and tricks as well? So I think I was really fortunate that I taught like a regular level of economics. I've taught that for, I think, almost 10 years now. And in that curriculum, I have, you know, almost complete autonomy. I can, you know, bring it. So in that class, we, like this week, for example, we're having a a week long, we're going to be having a a debate on minimum wage. Um, In the future, we have, you know, discussions on should there be a market for human kidneys? Um, Should... uh, college athletes get paid, right? So there's all these like real world things that I think a lot of students naturally find uh, relevant to their life. And even though I'm not able to bring in all of those topics in my AP macro, like I have basically this kind of long list of topics and examples that help illustrate these more abstract economic concepts in ways that are relevant to them. And I think that's the biggest um, key. And I think this is true for pretty much all subject areas, like if there is some way that we can find uh, uh, to connect this with students. So instead of just teaching them how to calculate inflation using the consumer price index, I could say, all right, before we talk about this, like raise your hand if you drive and you you know have to buy your own gas, right? And then a number of students raise their hands because most of them are seniors. And then I say, all right, what have you noticed about gas prices? Okay, well, obviously it's it's gone up, right? In the last six months or so. And then I'll say, well, why has it gone up? And before you talk again, cooperative structure, I'll say, all right, get in your groups of four. Each pair has another pair that sits right behind them. And I'll say, all right, I'd like you to come up with a couple reasons why. You have about 60 seconds, go. And then I'll, and then they know that, hey, I'm going to call on someone at random from each group. It's just a norm. We've established from the very beginning of the school year. And I'll say, all right, you know, the person with the curliest hair in each group, please stand up. And then they'll share. And so before we even get into the graphing and, you know, like this is what's happened to aggregate demand and aggregate supply, they're hooked because they're like, oh, yeah, I, I kind of should know why gas prices are going up. So I think finding different ways of making it relevant to students' lives, I think, is the key to getting them motivated. You know, I think that, that that's hopefully the way to get them intrinsically motivated. For many students, it's oftentimes the extrinsic motivation of, hey, I want to pass this class, I want to pass the AP course, I want to earn college credit. So the motivation extrinsically is oftentimes there. Uh, but then intrinsically, when I'm able to connect it to their life, there's usually a little bit more motivation. Yeah, I mean, when you said a debate about minimum wage, I was like, ready. I'm like, I'm ready. Put me in, coach. (laughs) I could debate all day. But also knowing that, hey, if I know a little bit about why this is a thing, that's also 
um, that's also exciting, right? I can't just say I have this opinion, but now they can back it up with facts, um, with history, with, you know, all of those things that could potentially um, be good for debates as well. So this is, this is really, I, I'm so glad that you are making it relevant for students and also that they can easily relate to it and just know like, okay, this is how I can use these skills outside of this classroom. Because again, like you said, it makes it that much more meaningful for our students to learn when they know that it's something that's going to affect them outside of the classroom. And really like there's so much happening in our lives right now. We, it would be nice to just kind of understand even just a little bit of it. (laughs) Yep. Yep. And I think that's what I tell them. Like, you know, you might not remember every single graph or every formula you learn in this class, but I want to make sure that you leave with the ability to think like an economist, like an economic way of thinking. And like you said, that's based on looking at data, right? Looking at different points of view, um, trying to get at the root cause of something like asking, why is this happening? Like if you can do those few things, um, I'm happy, right? If I see you on the street five years from now, I don't, I'm not going to ask you, can you draw an ADAS graph, you know, but I'd love it if you're still, trying to read current events and still thinking about it in interesting ways. Yes, that's so, so true. That's so true. Um, okay, so we're going to switch gears a little bit. This school year, you had shared with me that you were, you received a new prep, which I think you uh, called earlier sheltered world culture. Is that right? Yes. For, for English learners. So how do you ensure that students are collaborating with one another when they're also learning English? So they're learning this whole new content, but also learning the language. How are you making sure that students are collaborating? Right. So I think, you know, especially you know, whether we're talking about AP or ELL, um, I think approaching both from the lens of equity, I think is really important because we don't want to put students in a position where they're constantly feeling like they're the ones that always need help. They're the ones that are always behind. They're the ones that are always struggling. Like if we're able to kind of take the approach of what strengths do the students have? What assets do they have and how can they contribute? And how can I set those students up to be able to contribute to the class community, regardless of what level of knowledge they have in economics or in world cultures or in English, right, for my English learners. So a couple ways that I try to do that with my English learners in world cultures is making sure that I give them scaffolds that allow them to participate more equitably. So something as simple as, you know, in my AP class, I might just say, okay, turn to your group, you know, talk about this, you know, reasons for inflation. For my EL world uh, world cultures, what I'll do is like, I'll make sure I put up uh, a, a sentence stem, right, or a sentence starter. And so that way, even the students that might be newer to English uh, are able to participate. I also try to make sure um, that for my students that are really new, like they have an opportunity to uh, process in their L1, right, or their native language, and um, think first in their native language, and then, um, you know, they can use a sentence stem to share what they've learned in English. And I think if we if I didn't do that, you know, we, it would be easy to assume like, oh, this student doesn't know anything, but it's really, they, they know quite a bit, but they're just having a challenge expressing it. So I think providing sentence stems, providing scaffolds, providing models, and then uh, increasing the amount of time they have to process, right? Because as you're learning a new language, you need additional time to think in that language, um, maybe even write in that language before you even like speak in that language. And so giving them the time to do that. Uh, the other uh, aspect is like giving stimulus that's accessible. So 
you know, not, I wouldn't be able to use the same article for a whole class discussion like I do in my uh, regular economics class. There's just too wide of a range. So instead, um, I'll either give like tiered readings or even better, we'll have small discussions based on some visual stimulus. So either a map or a chart or a political cartoon, something that pretty much regardless of your English proficiency, you're able to, you know, share some thoughts on. Uh, so I think, uh, you know, giving them the scaffolds, whether it's sentence stems, and then making sure that whatever content I'm providing is comprehensible, allows students to kind of collaborate and participate, um, even if they're still learning English and they're not as proficient as, you know, quote unquote, regular students. Yeah, I know, like, even in my practice, and I'm not a native speaker as well, like, I would just be, I used to be afraid of getting them to speak, because I'm like, but they don't know the language. So then they can't really talk to each other, because they don't know the language. But then more and more, like, my students have just been like, no, we want to talk regardless. <laughs> and so it is really nice to have the scaffolds provided for them and also just modeling, right, like how this would look um, and what it would sound like. And I think, like you said, a lot of time to process because I did teach adult ESL at night when I was back in D.C. and I just, like, loved it. But when I first got there, it was a lot of just, like, computer work. And I really wanted to implement more talking opportunities because they're learning English. So they definitely need the practice to speak English. Right. And so, but also keeping in mind that like, we want to increase that time to process. Cause like you said, they have their L1, their native language. And sometimes our learners might be multilingual. Like this could be their third or fourth language that they're learning. And so process time is going to take a lot longer. Um, and so I really like the fact that you know, you make your learning accessible for any type of learner, honestly, and, and just making sure that the content that you're giving them and providing them is something that they're going to be able to comprehend and access, right? Like the visual aids, like, what do they say? Like a picture is worth a thousand words, right? Right, right. <laughs> and so just being super intentional with the visual aids that you use in the classroom. And then as well as like treating these students really like any other student, right? Like, yeah, they may be learning the language, but it doesn't mean that they don't know the content. It's just in a different language. Right, exactly. All right, cool. So listeners, we're going to take a quick break uh, for an announcement. And when we come back, we'll talk a little bit more about collaboration with our pun. Hey, listeners, here are our weekly announcements. Our first school year mentorship cohort is starting on Monday, October 17th, and we are so excited to see what kind of magic our new mentees create. We have a webinar specifically for admin and school leaders on Wednesday, October 19th at 4 p.m. Eastern Time with Dr. Catlin Tucker, titled Supporting Instructional Improvement and Innovation. We'll share the registration link in the webinar along with our webinars webpage and the show notes so you can check out all of our other webinars. And lastly, as a reminder, we do have a scholarship regions. We do have scholarship regions, so check out our scholarships page that will also be in the show notes. back with our pond. So we just had a really great conversation about some of the collaborative tasks and strategies that you implement in your classes, both your sheltered, um, your sheltered world culture classes, as well as your AP classes. So how do you ensure that your students are responsible and doing their part in collaborative tasks? It does seem like you're checking in on them a lot and especially with the progress trackers like you know you talked about with the Kagan um, strategies there's a lot of accountability right the interdependence and accountability so then as a teacher how do you ensure that every student is actually 
taking responsibility and doing their part. Right. So just I can highlight, you know, a few things that I mentioned earlier and I can build on that. So I think the, the main thing is that students, it just becomes a, a culture in the class. Um, I think if we try to devise like the perfect system of points and grades and it, there's always a way around it. Right. And so, uh, you know, sure, students do get grades and, you know, they do have to perform certain things. But what I try to focus on is like building a culture where it is the norm where you will have to share what you learned uh, and that you're going to have to share what you just worked on with your partner uh, with the class. And so I think that's the, the number one thing is building a culture from the very beginning of the, uh, of the course where it's, it's the norm where students know they'll be held accountable and it's okay to be wrong. Like it's okay to take risks. It's okay if you made a mistake, um, but that they know that they'll have to kind of share whatever they worked on. Um, I think the second thing is kind of building in that accountability in the structure of the activity. So like I mentioned, you know, reporting out to the group, reporting out to the class or something as simple as, okay, you've worked on this with your partner, but I want both of you to come up and you know that I'm going to ask either one of you to explain the graph that you just drew. So like knowing, like when I'm planning the practice activity, like what, what is the ways that I'm going to have them be accountable without having to grade everything? Um, you know, I just assigned uh, this practice um, uh, activity on, on this website. I'm not collecting any real data from that website. I'm, I'm, the students know that they just mark it off in the progress tracker when they've done that activity. But then I have them, for example, take notes in a specific part of their note packet. Um, and then they have to talk about it. So th there isn't like one like set of things like, oh, just do this and this and there's always accountability. It's more of building the culture and like the small ways is how I design the activities that they know that they have to report out and share with me or a group or with the whole class. Yeah. And it, it, it seems like you are creating this trust in your students, right? Like you trust them to make the right decisions. And I think sometimes as educators, it's really hard to relinquish that control and not hover over every single student to make sure they're doing exactly the yes. right thing at every minute. <laughs> um, and so it just seems like, again, you're creating this this safe and brave space and culture for your students to be able to show up as themselves, right? Like learning whatever they they need to learn and also embracing the mistakes that they come across. Um, and I, I love this thing about you just trusting them. Like you've created this culture. So now it's really up to them. You're holding them and you have high, high expectations and uh, you're holding them accountable. And I love also when you were talking about earlier, just like cold call, like they just kind of knew that you're going to call on them anytime. Um, and it doesn't mean that it's like a gotcha moment, but it's just like a, hey, let's see if you understand the concept. Uh, where did the conversation take you? How did you both come up with the answer or disagree or agree with what kind of structure came up? Right. And so I really like that. I really like that environment of just trust. And I think because you value autonomy as a teacher, that you also want that autonomy for your students. Right. Like providing them with so many different options and opportunities to showcase their learning. Right. And I think just, uh, two quick things, I think in terms of cold calling, I just want to make sure, you know, the listeners are, have a clear idea. Students in my class almost always have processing time, whether it's something time to write, time to think, uh, but usually time to talk with their partner or their group before I cold call. Cause I know that can be very, um, stressful for certain students. And so I want to make sure that they have lots of time to prepare. 
Um, and then in terms of kind of creating that culture and kind of self-accountability, one thing that I do is uh, at the end of every unit, students fill out a, a survey where they have to reflect on what topics did they learn well, which ones did they didn't learn as well, what suggestions do they have for me, uh, what activities do they really like, what, what might I change for next year? And then they have to reflect on their own um, participation and behavior. I don't give a participation grade. I just have them reflect on their participation. And one of the questions I ask them is, how well do you feel like you contribute and collaborate in this class? And they have to give them, they give like a, a numeric rating for themselves. And then they set a goal on how like they feel like they can improve. And what the survey, you know, I'll, I'll look through the survey, but really it's just a chance for students to reflect. But if I, you know, start noticing that certain students really are getting off task during you know time that they're supposed to be collaborating uh, or that they're not contributing um, then you know that's a conversation I have one-on-one -on -one, which again the flexibility of the uh, modern classroom model gives me that the time to do during class so um, rather than like saying rewarding collaboration with grades and points it's more based on reflection and conversation yeah, and I, I really like that approach as well, right? It's not necessarily about grading, but really just as a way to reflect. And thank you for clarifying about the call, the cold call, because I think that that's really important too. I know it was definitely nerve wracking for me as someone who just moved to the U.S. to be called on and be like and have to speak in front of students, in front of my peers. And so thank you for just like clarifying the fact that like you provide your students the chance or just time to process what they're learning, a time to discuss before you cold call. So. Whew, thank you for that. Um, so how do you ensure learning takes place equitably in your class, especially when students are collaborating? Right. So, you know, we, earlier we talked about uh, using a strength-based approach. And I think one, one way that I think about equity is, is each student getting what he or she or they need to reach their full potential? And the reason I think modern classrooms in general, and then just specifically the collaboration that I can do within that model helps do that is that it gives students the opportunity to access what they need in that moment. So I mentioned earlier, if a student struggles is struggling with, with the practice workbook, like they don't need to wait for my help necessarily to get help, right? They have a number of other peers that they can get help with right and at the same time right like if i've met with a small group of students already and i know that they've all basically mastered a certain practice activity i you know will occasionally like bold those names on the progress tracker and say hey make sure you if you have a question you go to these students because the students it shouldn't be the same group of students all the time that are the ones you know asking for help or, or the ones giving for help so um the opportunities that students have to kind of collaborate authentically, meaning get help and work with one another when they need it, I think allows for more equitable learning opportunities uh, using that strength-based approach, I think creates more equitable learning opportunities. And then also like in terms of how I group and when, like what are the strategic ways that I try to create groups um, to make sure that, okay, um, I'm gonna make sure that I meet with this group of students because I can see based on the data that they need help here. Right, so I don't have to wait till even the mastery check or, or the end of the unit. Like I can give that um, extra support right when they like right, right right when they need it. And so I think that's another way where I'm able to meet with those group of students. And in terms of like collaborating amongst a group of students, I mentioned working with partners and groups, uh, but but also um, like just that time for conversation because students can 
sometimes, you know, having different ways that students are showing their learning. So it's not always just the multiple choice um, or the short answer, but like through conversation and, you know, students are able to gain confidence. Like, okay, I can, I, I understand this. Like I can explain this. I can even explain it to my group members, even if they might struggle on like the traditional assessment, which they take um, that's multiple choice or short answer. So I think giving different ways for students to share their learning um, while working with groups, while working with the class, with their partner, also helps create more equitable learning. Yeah, definitely something I tell my students all the time is that if you can explain a concept, a skill, a topic to someone, that's really how you know you've mastered it, right? So for example, if you're learning this really hard math concept and you know your caregiver, your families have no idea what you're talking about and you can explain to them and they got it, that's how you know you understood the assignment. And I really like also the fact that you are saying about authentically collaborating with one another, asking for help from each other, from from your peers, as opposed to just always depending on the teachers. Because, you know, traditional teaching, um, it really does require a lot of dependence on teachers. Because um, I know when I was when I was teaching traditionally, it was a lot of gatekeeping for me that I was like, I'm the one who knows all of this information when it's really not the case. (laughs) I mean, especially when Google came out, Google knows a lot more than me. And so it's really an interesting shift of like, you know what, like, I really do have to relinquish all this control that I had before to create this learning and teaching environment so that my students are comfortable and making mistakes and embracing their mistakes and talking to each other so that they can learn from each other. And so something that I'm hearing from you upon is that culture is really important before you start collaborating (laughs) Yes, because you could have all of these dope strategies, but if your students don't feel comfortable with each other or with you or in the classroom, that the collaborative tasks aren't going to be as successful as you wanted it to be. Right. And so culture, creating that culture, that classroom culture where students feel valued, where students feel heard and seen, and also giving them the autonomy to show what they're learning and giving them multiple opportunities and options to showcase their learning is really, really important. And so with that being said, Arpan, what do you hope to see in the future and what goals do you have? Right. So this is the second year that I've been implementing the modern classroom model. And I'm really excited. I've, you know, I've already seen like clear evidence in their test scores, you know, that this is working. And it's made me really um, like want to do more and, and, and try new things. So one thing that I've noticed is a lot of my collaboration is still a little bit directed by me. Like I'll say, okay, if you finish the workbook, you know, talk to your partner, talk to your group, be ready to share out. Occasionally they'll like self-initiate when they need help. So, but what I'm hoping is that I start teaching them how to self-initiate on collaboration and when to self-initiate. So for example, even while they're watching a video, if let's say they hear a concept that I explained and it doesn't make sense a couple of times, like, yeah, they could definitely ask me, but they could also look at the progress tracker and see, oh, this student uh, already watched it. Um, maybe I can ask him or her, um, or they, if they understood it, you know? Um, so 
I think like giving, teaching them how to self-initiate collaboration instead of me being the one that's always designing like those structures or those activities. So that's, I think, one way uh, that I want to do collaboration. And then I also would love to increase collaboration for those aspire to do. So right now I mainly do like this discussion board, but like I'd love for it to be like, okay, um, you know, work with a partner or work with a group. And I want you to come up with like a two minute presentation that uh, on a policy recommendation on how to uh, fight on uh, inflation right now, for example. Uh, I would like you to, uh, you know, work with a pair of students to uh, record like your own like five minute podcast on your thoughts on, uh, you know, why there's so much inequality despite growing GDP. Because I have students consuming that, like I have students listening to podcasts, I have students uh, reading different policy recommendations, but I haven't yet done enough of like students collaborating on those more authentic assignments. And I would love to do that as well. Oh, you've got some great goals here, Arpan. I'm so excited for you and your students. This is going to be so cool. <laughs> Thank you. I'm excited too. Yeah. Keep me posted. Definitely. So then how can our listeners connect with you? Sure. Um, although I don't, I don't tweet very often. You can find me on Twitter at uh, Mr. Choksi, so M R C H O K S H I, and then I also have a website which is www.teacherreflections.com with one R, so T E A C H E R E F L E C T I O N S dot com. I love this is so, so, so great, Arpan. I love just being in the same space as you. So thank you again so much for saying yes and sharing your expertise and your experiences with us. And so listeners, remember, you can always email us at podcast at modernclassrooms.org and you can find the show notes for this episode at podcast.modernclassrooms.org slash 110. We'll have this episode's recap and transcript uploaded to the Modern Classroom blog on Friday. So be sure to check there or check back in the show notes for this episode if you'd like to access those. Thank you all for listening. Have a great week and we'll be back next Sunday. Thank you so much for listening. You can find links to topics and tools we discussed in our show notes for this episode. And remember, you can learn more about our work at www.modernclassrooms.org and you can learn the essentials of our model through our free course at learn.modernclassrooms.org You can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Modern Class Proj, that's P-R-O-J. We are so appreciative of all you do for students and schools. Have a great week and we'll be back next Sunday with another episode of the Modern Classrooms Project Podcast. Podcast.